Psalm 46. If you're able, would you stand with me as I read from the Psalms? Heavenly Father, send your Spirit upon us that our eyes and our hearts and our minds would be open to this powerful word, that we might see clearly who you are, what you have done for us, and the love that you give to us through your Son, Jesus the Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Psalm 46, for the choir director, the psalm of the sons of Korah, set to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice, and the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Come and behold the works of the Lord who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. This is God's inspired word for us today. Please be seated. And, of course, those three words in brackets, Selah, really means to stop, think on what you have just read, think on what you have just heard, ponder these things. If you're praying through the Psalms and you come to this Psalm, you can easily divide it into those sections and read the first three, pray the first three, contemplate on what the Lord has just told you there. Now, I want to go back in time, and the year is 701 B.C. It is the fourth year of the reign of King Hezekiah, king of Judah, the southern kingdom. He was a good and godly king, and that is categorized by the phrase that we find not that often in the Old Testament. Um, He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. More often than not, we see in in the illustration and description of kings, he did not do right in the eyes of the Lord, and Judah, or Israel, goes downhill. Hezekiah is a godly man. This is all recorded for us in 2 Kings 18 and 19, and really we believe that this is the context from which this psalm comes. Judah was surrounded by the army of Sennacherib, who is the king of Assyria, who was known more for his construction projects than he was for his 
um, uh, military campaigns, but whenever the Assyrians were on the march, it was usually bad news for everybody who was in their way. They were a particularly nasty people and did particularly nasty things to conquered nations. So, so far, 46 towns and villages in Judah had been sacked. Over 200,000 residents had been taken captive along with all of their wealth and all their material things. And Jerusalem is the next city on the path of King Sennacherib. And he arrives with somewhere around 185,000 troops that surround the capital of Judah. And it looks like only a matter of time before Jerusalem has to capitulate and they too are conquered. But Sennacherib did not take into account the God that Hezekiah had faith in. So Hezekiah goes before the Lord, it says, and he rips his clothes and he lays himself out before God. And he confesses his sin, he confesses the sin of the people, and he says, Lord, will you not come and save your city? There is no other way that we can be saved except by your intervention. And it is at this moment that the Lord speaks to the prophet Isaiah, and Isaiah enters in there with Hezekiah before the Lord. And this is seen in 2 Kings 18, 19, 2 Chronicles 32, Isaiah 36 and 37. And said, the Lord will deliver you and the city of Jerusalem. And that night, 185,000 of Sennacherib's troops were killed by the angel of the Lord. So Psalm 46 is is what scholars believe that this is the context that it is written out of, one of extreme anxiety, uh, what it seems like to be extreme hopelessness, purely from the view of man, purely from the eyes of man. If you stood on the wall and were King Hezekiah and looked out at Sennacherib's troops and looked at your own city and what you had to defend the city with, you knew it was only a matter of time before they destroyed your city. Well, not only is it a psalm for the protection of the city, and out of those times it relates to anybody who's in a time of trouble. Anybody who, who comes and looks at their circumstance and goes, Lord, I, am, I, I have no means left. I have no means to defend this. I have no means to overcome this. It is completely beyond my ability, and I simply throw myself before you And I want to see and I wait for what you will do. And this psalm tells us that God is our refuge. He will not be moved. Even if everything else in our lives falls apart, God is still the same. He is still the same. The fact that God is our refuge and strength does not mean that we are immune from troubles. Okay, Don't think that, hey just became a Christian, my life was from now on is going to be easy, I'm in the money, something like that. That is not the way the Christian life works. The promise is that God will not abandon us. There is no promise that we will not find trouble and be find difficulty in our lives. And we need to be clear because there are some people today who teach that every person who becomes a believer is promised a life of prosperity, material prosperity, and personal health. And unfortunately, Scripture doesn't really teach that. See, uh, you have to read Job and find uh, that that's not always a guarantee, okay? God is our help in trouble. He does not exempt us from trouble. Okay, remember, God is our help in trouble. He does not exempt us from trouble. 
And the trouble that we see in Psalm 46, there are great global changes here. There are earthquakes and storms. There are wars. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11 mentions all sorts of troubles and trials that the believer will go through. Uh, homelessness, um, no proper clothing or food, mockings, tortures, beatings, stonings, imprisonments, various types of cruel execution. This is what the author of Hebrews says, 11, chapter 11, 35 to 40. Now, we understand that when an airplane crashes, God does not first get rid of all the believers on the airplane and then lets the pagans die. He doesn't do that. We know what there, when there is a war, God does not come in and clean out all of the believers in a particular city and then let it be invaded. He just does not do that. We would like to think in our kind of our humanness that, well, the Lord's really going to strike down all those who have lived the sinful, debauched life. Okay? or who are presently living it, because some of us lived it before we became believers, and we like to think that our grace is, is going to cover that, but we think, oh no, the Lord is going to kill the evil people. No, sometimes Christians die. Sometimes just with the rest of the pagans. And we understand that oftentimes in the Old Testament, when the Lord would use, as an example, the Babylonians to discipline his own people, there were faithful people who were killed along with the unfaithful people. But God was with them. God was their strength and fortress. He didn't say nothing bad is going to happen. He said, I will always be there with you. Let's look at the first part, the superscription there, or the, or the title. To the choir director, it really is the chief musician. The chief musician. This tells us that this is an important psalm, not to be left to the second-tier musicians. Okay, Randy would not be playing this song, okay, if you get that, okay? Spurgeon says, Trifles may be left to common songsters, but the most skillful musician in Israel must be charged with the due performance of this song with the most harmonious voices and the choicest music. The title is particular as to what voices voices should sing this psalm. As you see, a psalm of the sons of Korah set to Alamoth. Alamoth. Now, not, not every word is, do we have a translation of or a meaning for, but the best we can come up with is that these are high voices. Sopranos should sing this song. That's kind of what, um, what the thought is. And Andrew Bonner, who's, who's uh, just an old guy who wrote fantastic commentary on Scripture, said, This is really for a choir of virgins, a choir of virgins. As if this virgin choir were selected to sing a psalm that tells of the perils and fears and alarms abounding in order to show that even the feeble virgins may in that day sing without dread because of the mighty one on their side. Now the psalm is divided really into three uh, areas that illustrate the work of God, illustrate his power, his character, his domain, what he is about. So let's look at the first one. God is our refuge and strength. The strength and safety of the believer does not rest in the security of this world. It doesn't rest in our armies, it doesn't rest in our own fortresses. God alone is our all in all. Let me quote Spurgeon. All other refuges are refuges of lies. All other strength is weakness, for power belongs unto God. But as God is all-sufficient, our defense and might are equal to all emergencies. He is not saying that Randy's defense is 
up to speed. He is saying because the Lord is our refuge, the Lord is our strength, we can stand against anything because we rest in him. Now, this is the attitude that is to mark the believer's life, that the Lord is my strength and my refuge. Now, please understand, I'm not a pacifist. If, you, if I find you in my house at 3 a.m., you're probably going to have a rear end full of buckshot, okay? Because you're not supposed to be there. But it is an overarching confidence in my life that the Lord is always there for me. He is always watching out for me. Never does, does he go, now where did Randy go? He was here a minute ago. What happened to him? Okay? That is never it. And how many people must he watch? There are six or seven billion people in the world. He knows where all of them are at all the time. He knows what you are about to say at any moment. He knows every hair on every head of six and a half billion people. And for those who are his, those who through Christ belong to him, there is this special relationship. He knows you even in a more intimate fashion, if, even if that were possible. Even if that were possible. So God is my fortress and strength. It is this view of the one true God that permeates all that the believer does, all that we say, every attitude that we have. He is a very present help in trouble. Now, the key word there is very. He is a very present help. He is more present in his help than is the trouble present. Okay? Now, here is the trouble that, I, that is present in my life. Now, where is the Lord? He is even closer to me than this trouble is. That's what that word means. He is a very present help in times of trouble. In this psalm, you'll notice there's nothing about our own virtue. There's nothing about our own power. There's nothing about our own wisdom or ability. Spurgeon says, though the earth is removed, the believer is undismayed. And this does not arise from his own personal self-sufficiency, but from God, who is his refuge and strength. He is fearless, not because of his original stoutness of heart and natural firmness of will, but because he has a God to shelter and uphold him. If he does not fear calamity, it is because he fears God and God alone. So when we face calamity, when we face these trials, remember, this is... There are 185,000 enemy troops that have surrounded the city of God. And what do they do? They trust in God. You don't see a discussion about getting the armory together. You don't see a discussion about hoarding food or anything like that. You see Hezekiah go before the Lord and say, it is up to you. We will trust in you. And the Lord says, watch what I will do. And he delivers his people. Again, Spurgeon says, once more, dear friends... In order to realize the fearlessness of which this text so sweetly sings, we must not only have a past experience at our back, but an immediate enjoyment of divine help. If you can truly sing in your soul, God is my refuge and strength, then it will be impossible for you to be afraid. In the days of the most furious opposition, Martin Luther used to look at his friend, Philip Melanchthon, who was his cohort in the Reformation, and said, Come, Philip, let us sing the 46th Psalm and let the devil do his worst to us. Okay? Let's sing this Psalm and let the devil have at us because our refuge is in our Heavenly Father. Therefore, we will not fear. It doesn't say, therefore, we will not run away. I mean, sometimes it's okay to to leave and, and, and to hit the road, but we will not fear. We will not fear. 
It doesn't say that we will not faint. It doesn't say anything like that. It says, therefore, we will not fear. And again, Spurgeon says, suppose again that the most awful things were to occur. Would they not occur according to God's decree? Do we not believe that there is no such thing as luck? Do we not believe that God is sovereign and his hand of providence guides all things? Now, that is not a very popular thing to discuss. But there is that, gee, there is that passage in Romans 8 somewhere, isn't it? And does it say that God causes most things, all things, oh gosh, <laughs> all things, for those who are called according to his purposes and love him. Understand that. That is very important to understand. God causes these things in the lives of believers for our good. Well, Lord, I don't think this one's very good, we might say, but he does not say, I will, and I will explain those things to you as well. Sometimes it is simply left to us to rest in that knowledge and wait for the explanation. And wait for the explanation. Do you believe, Spurgeon goes on, do you believe anything is left to chance? Is any event outside the circle of divine predestination? He says, no, my brothers and sisters. With God, there are no contingencies. The mighty charioteer of providence has gathered up all the reins of all the horses, and he guides them all according to his infallible wisdom. There is a certain foreknowledge and predestination which concerns all things, from the motion of the grains of dust on the threshing floor to that of the flaming comet which blazes across the sky. Nothing can happen but what God ordains, and therefore, why should we fear? We fear no man. It is this sense of the nearness and graciousness of God that is an antidote to human fear. It is an antidote to our fear. How is it that we can stand at the bedside of believers and look into their faces as they near death and not see fear? Now, I've been to a lot of bedsides, and I've been both believers and non-believers. And you can see in the eyes of non-believers, they don't know what is happening. They don't know what the next moment brings. But for believers, there is a confidence. that Usually the anxiety is with us who are there with them. But for believers, the Lord is their stay and their strength. Now, he begins by pointing to us who... God is. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. And this, by, this is a classic example, example of praying the attributes of God. We talked earlier, if you're praying through the Psalms and you come to this Psalm, Lord, you are my refuge and my strength. I will rest in you. You are my very present help in trouble. And Lord, I know that you are closer to me than the trouble itself. Lord, I have no reason to fear. In my humanness, I might be afraid. In my humanness, I might look at my surroundings and think no answer is there, but yet I will trust in you. Because even if the earth should change, even if the mountains that are immovable according to man should fall into the heart of the sea, though the waters of the sea rise up and roar and foam, I will trust in you. That's how you pray through that song. You pray these divine attributes of the Lord, trusting him for your particular circumstances as you find them now. And 
And what's it say? God will make us, will build for us a refuge and strengthen us. Is that what it says? No, it doesn't say that. It says God is our refuge. God himself is our refuge. He does not give us a refuge. He does not provide for us a refuge. It is he himself in all of his glory and power and righteousness and strength. He, he is, there is no beginning to him. There is no ending to him. You cannot go anywhere that you can be out of his presence. That is the God who is our refuge. He secures us. And we take refuge in him. Now, R.C. Sproul, who uh, was teaching at a, at a seminary at one time and had a particular class, and, and at the start of each class, he would ask students to pray. Now, that, that would be somewhat intimidating, okay? Uh, there you have this guy who's, who's got, you know, written 70 books and, uh, you know, just speaks everywhere and, and, and could really, you know, uh, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but he could probably do the sermon better than me without studying, okay? He comes in and says, uh, you know, uh, son, will you pray for us to open class? So everybody was terrified of being called on to pray because he, you knew he was going to critique your prayer. So uh, the guy says, Lord God, be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. And Sproul looks at him and says, son, do you not believe that God is omnipresent? Do you not believe that God is here with us right now? Do you think he is somewhere else, that he has gone away and, and has lost sight of us? And, and, you know, he wasn't picking on the young man. He was trying to get the young man to think about the presence of God and who he is. And he, it's not denying that God is everywhere at once, but it's, remember, we are God's special creation. He is always here with us, and it's a reminding, God, come and be with us here. Remind us of who you are. Remind us that you are our fortress and our strength. And then, as I said, we come to that word at the end of verse 3, Selah. Think on these things. Let these things sink into your brain and into your head and into your heart. Verse 4, there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. God is the resource against nations that rage. Now, in the Middle East, water is life. Water is life. And Jerusalem is one of the few ancient cities that is not built on a river. Okay? There is no river close to Jerusalem. Ancient cities had to have water inside the walls, especially in times of siege, because you can only go a couple days without water. When Sennacherib was coming towards Jerusalem, he was sure that their lack of water would ultimately drive them into surrender. But unknown to Sennacherib, Jerusalem had a source of water. Hezekiah went before his uh, group of of, uh, advisors, and this is in 2 Chronicles 32, when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that he intended to wage war against Jerusalem, he consulted with his officials and military staff about blocking off the water from the springs outside the city, and they helped him. They gathered a large group of the people who blocked all the springs and the stream that flowed through the land. Why should the king of Assyria come and find plenty of water, they said. Well, for those who have been to Jerusalem, you understand, this is Hezekiah's tunnel. 1,777 feet through solid rock. They went to the spring 
they went down, and, and I've seen, I, was, I did not go in the tunnel, but I've seen the opening, and the opening goes down, down. You know, typical guy, you, you stand there and you want to throw something down or spit down there on the, uh, from the height. Uh, but I resisted. But you can see the tunnel goes off through solid rock, and it was one of the first tunnels ever built from each end. They began digging at each end and arrived there in the middle. And that is where the water came from. So when we look at the, uh, at the words here, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Uh, the, the author of Psalm is, is kind of comparing Hezekiah's tunnel and the water source that came and sustained them with God's hand in sustaining them in all things. I mean, God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. Now, make sure that we understand that goes back to verses 2 and 3. The city is not going to be moved. God is her strength. She is safe. God is in her midst. God will help her. God will help her soon. God will help her soon. Now look at verse 6. The nations make an uproar, the kingdoms tottered, he raised his voice, and the earth melted. The year is now 1527, and it was one of the most difficult years in the life of Martin Luther. After 10 years of leading the Reformation, he was preaching on April 22nd. In the midst of the sermon, he got dizzy and had to be taken away. And during that entire summer, he suffered from distress and pain. Uh, he never really thought he was going to survive it, uh, never, certainly not preach again or be, be valuable for the Lord in ministry. And what added to the trouble is in that summer, the Black Death came to Wittenberg, which is where Martin Luther lived with his family. So many people fled the city. During that summer, Luther and his wife, Katie, who was pregnant at the time with her second child, decided to remain within the city, those two, their one-year-old son, Hans, and they turned their house into a hospital. And Luther writes that, I saw many, many of my friends die. And his son, Hans, became very sick that summer. He did survive, but he was, it just was all bad that summer. And you know what he did that summer? He wrote, my fortress is our God. In the midst of the city, in plague, in the midst of his own pain, in the midst of his own sorrow, he writes this hymn. He's spoken about a world that's filled with devils and threatening to tear us apart, to undo us. But he says, but we will not fear because God has willed his truth to triumph through us. Because now his focus is not simply on devils, but upon Satan. And he felt that, that perhaps Satan was having at him during this time. He says, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. Why? Lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And then he uses the entire final stanza to describe that word. That word above all earthly powers. But thanks to him, them who abideth, that word is Jesus Christ. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Nobody can get to this fortress. 
Look back at this, at this fortress and the, and the mountains are slipping into the sea and all these things are changing. But there is the fortress, the Lord. Nobody can invade it. No army can pierce its walls. It is the Lord. We are secure because he is the fortress. Because of what he does. Because of the wonders that he provides for us. Remember the psalm we sang, glorious things of thee are spoken? I quoted this, this passage. With salvation's walls surrounded, thou mayest smile on all your foes. Can't you just see it? Here we stand in our refuge, in our strength. And this is the humanness coming out. And we look at all our enemies and all our foes and we go... Because he can't get to us. We are secure in our refuge. He is the strength. He is the one in whom we rest. In the last couple verses, the final picture that we find here. Verse 8, come behold the works of the Lord who has wrought desolation. It's the final picture. It's a picture of the future. It's a picture of a battlefield after the battle is over. There are the bodies, there are the weapons, they're strewn out all over the place. And so God's power over the whole warring world is celebrated in this last section. It's a picture used by the psalmist to remind us of God's power to protect us against anything, about his complete victory that is guaranteed over all the forces arrayed against us. It is a picture of the desolation of the enemies of God. This final section is a lot like the book of Revelation. If you take nothing else from any study or reading of the book of Revelation, you take this. In the end, God wins. We belong to him. We're on his side because he has called us. So in the end, we win. Here's the end of the psalm. In the end, God wins. I know the city is surrounded. I know it looks terrible. I know it looks like you think you are about to fall at any moment. But don't worry. In the end, you win. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. Now the psalm is not just about the battle around Jerusalem. It is about the entire earth and what the Lord will do here. This is not an ending of wars through the Department of State. This is not an ending of wars through any negotiation of men. This is an end of wars through the obliteration of the enemies of God. Cease striving and know that I am God. This cannot be compared to any peace treaty before between men or between nations. It is a peace imposed upon man whether we like it or not. Remember that phrase in Philippians? And at the end, who will bow before Jesus? Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. Now, is that only for believers? No, that is for everybody. Everybody alive will recognize this is Jesus Christ. He is Lord, and I am toast or I am his. There are only two categories there. And God is speaking to his enemies here at the end. And he says, he puts up his hands and says, silence. I will reign. And no one else. This is the God who is our fortress. This is the God who is our strength. This is the God who is our refuge. This is the God who calls us by name. Open your hymnals to to hymn 118. 
Stand with me and sing it for all your worth. A mighty fortress is our God. <laughs> 